This is Life of an Architect, a podcast dedicated to all things architecture with a little bit of life thrown in for balance. Astronaut, fireman, ballerina, pilot, builder, dump truck driver. These are all things that children consider as a profession, even before they know the word profession. For a lot of architects, but not all, they decide they want to be an architect pretty early in their childhood development. How does that work out? What does it look like? And does it change as you move through the process? Andrew and I are going to be taking a look at that today. Welcome to episode 142, When I Grow Up. Today's episode is generously brought to you with support from Construction Specialties, maker of architectural building products designed to master the movement of buildings, people, and natural elements. Welcome to the Life of an Architect podcast. I'm Bob Borson. And I'm Andrew Hawkins. And today we're kicking off the seventh season of the Life of an Architect podcast. I have to tell you, Andrew, that when I realized that this morning, as I was putting together my notes for today's show, it kind of punched me in the face. Yeah, I didn't realize that either. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, the last episode we said it, but I didn't really think about it. And when I think of the Life of an Architect website in sort of an abstract way, And how I started it back in January 2010. Actually, when this show comes out, it will be the anniversary of when I started Life of an Architect. Technically, this gets released, I think, on January 14th. Yeah. And that was the day I started the website, back in 2010. So, 14 years, I guess, ago? Yeah. Wow. Yeah, 14 years ago. So, I always think about how the site existed, like, forever. And then just recently, I started with you, the podcast. And the reality is, is I went eight years with no podcast, and now we're on year seven of the podcast, which, you know. Yeah, it's weird that it's getting 50-50. Even in my mind, it seems like the website was around for decades before you started the podcast. I know, so long. And now we're, I started doing the math in my head, how long it'll be when it's 50. It'll be two years before it's 50-50, but. Yeah, still. still, yeah. I was like, that's crazy. It's weird. So Andrew and I had a chat. Well, I guess it was yesterday. And we were going through all the different kind of topics that we have on board for this year. And there's a lot of really good ones. But I thought it would be a topic that would be worth starting the year off. Should begin with a starting of sorts. And it has to do with starting the process of being an architect. When did that happen? And the idea of constant change and evolution to that process. It's not one decision and you're done. There's a process. You make a decision, you live with it, you have regret, <laughs> you know, or you pivot or it changes, or you realize that something's not what you thought it was, or it's everything that you hoped it would be. And, you know, things just kind of change. I want to say I graduated 31 years ago. Oh, man. Maybe we should edit that part out. <laughs> <laughs> it was 31 years ago. And I think about maybe a dozen times in those 31 years, I wasn't where I thought I'd be. Like things mm. happen. And they weren't all bad. Yes. But at any moment in time, if I planted a flag and I went, this is it. Yeah. It's not that. (laughs) Yeah. Every time I plant that flag, I fast forward. I mean, some amount of time. Sometimes it was a very short amount of time. Sometimes it was, you know, years. And I look back at that flag planted years earlier or weeks or whatever. And it's different. Where I thought I was going to be is not the same. 
So that's what I thought. Today would be a good topic to start about the when I grow up and talk about that process. So you here for this? You ready? Yeah, let's do it. Okay. So let's start with how did it start? And I know I've told this story before, but I'm not going to make people go back and track it down. But it started for me when I was five years old and it was Christmas morning and my dad comes walking around the corner. I mean, we had presents. We're, you know, for us, we opened gifts Christmas Eve and then Santa Claus brought the goods that night. And we had like normally the, like our big gift that we got came from Santa and we got it Christmas morning. Mm-hmm. So my dad walks around the corner to get my Santa Claus gift. And when he comes back around, he's carrying a piece of wood, a T-square, and an orange 45-degree triangle. I didn't know what any of those things were, for the record. But I put my hands on that drawing table. It was just a board, to be honest. It didn't have legs or anything. It's almost like you set it on top of something else. Maybe it's what made it portable. Mm -hmm. And it was so smooth, and it felt so good. And I looked at it, and I went, I'm going to cut this up and make a boat. And my dad's like, whoa. (laughs) That's not what this is for. And then he explained, and I should say that my dad was an engineer, and it's likely that he thought by giving me these things, he was setting me on the path to becoming an engineer, to follow my old man into the Mm -hmm. engineering profession. But considering I thought I was going to cut up and make a boat, maybe my first inclinations were to be a craftsman or a builder. (laughs) But, But instantly, I didn't go to engineering. I went to doing buildings with this. And that's what started me on that path, quite honestly. And One of the things I think that's different is I was five. So every idea of who I was or what I was going to become started in that moment. And I didn't once think about doing something else until I got to college and had a couple bumps (laughs) in my path. I guess my question would be, though, is did you know at that point, I know like looking back, you can say that that was it, but. Did you know that architects existed and that that was a job and like that was actually what you wanted to be was an architect or was it just you wanted to draw buildings and that's kind of where it was? The latter. Yeah. Okay. I didn't know the word architect. Yeah. But you know, it's like, and you've probably gotten some questions. I'm, I got emails for, I guess I could say decades now because I am more than 10 about people that when they ask questions, they say, well, let me tell you a little bit about myself. And they tell stories about Legos and depending on their age, Lincoln Logs and So I had all those toys as a kid. Mm -hmm. I didn't really have Legos, to be honest with you, but I definitely had Lincoln Logs. And then I also had this skyscraper toy, and it was just a bunch of little plastic wide flanges that could snap in one another. Yeah. And then it had little plastic curtain wall pieces. Yeah. yeah, yeah. They were all rectangular. Mm -hmm. So all you could do, you couldn't do any of this Zaha Hadid business when I, (laughs) it was all classic SOM when I was a kid. You could build a prism. Yeah. So I knew that people did buildings, but I didn't know really what that meant. I mean, everyone's aware that buildings exist. And so I started building skyscrapers, really is what it was, and ranches, because that's what you built with Lincoln Logs. You're not doing any contemporary work with Lincoln Logs. Everything was a pitch roof, (laughs) you know, and there was always stables. (laughs) Everything I designed had a stable. Yeah, I got you. Yeah. So that was the process I went through. And it wasn't until. Like, I started getting drawing gifts when I was a kid. Like, I remember getting a light table when I was a kid. Mm-hmm. And, and I would trace stuff off of it. 
So there was no structure to this. It just kind of showed up. I remember all those things I used to trace. My recollection of those things is that everything was smudged. <laughs> like, you know, whatever I drew left-handed, I dragged my hand through everything, and it was all pencil work. So I remember that being one of the first things that made me start thinking about how I hold a pencil so I don't drag my hand through what I'm drawing. So I, I started changing the way I hold my I don't know what to call them, pencils, pens, whatever it is. So I went through that process, but I didn't do anything until I got to high school and I took drafting class. I took two years of drafting. And you know what? There was no technique. I look back on that now and I thought that class was a lot of fun. There was a lot of screwing off in that class. I mean, we used to throw eraser bags at each other and get in trouble and stuff like that. He would just give us stuff to draw and then he's like, draw it. I don't remember any technique. I don't remember the... Oh, really? Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. It was like the, the football coach teaching drafting or something. He's like, here, just draw this, you know? Yeah, that's 100% what it was. His name was Luther Gentry. He was awesome dude, by the way. But he was not the most engaged of teachers. From what I understand, he was an awesome football coach. <laughs> you know, he was the strength and conditioning coach. And, and he, probably dealt, he probably taught defensive line or something because he was humongous. I mean, he might have been the biggest human being I'd ever seen in my life. I remember somebody telling a story, and this is a rabbit hole, but he was teaching them technique on how to do like bench press. And one of the guys that we had, I'm not sure what his name was, was going for like a personal best. And he was bench pressing like 250 pounds in high school, which seemed, that was like four Bob Borsons at that point in my life. And so he tells that guy, here, get out of the way. We need to make sure you have right technique because you could hurt yourself. So this guy's going for personal best and Coach Gentry just sits down and he just starts banging out these 250-pound reps like there were nothing. Like, you do this, and you lower it to this point, and he'd, like, lower it three-quarters of the way and just be talking and holding it. See how my elbows are pointed away from my... Tuck them in, you know, to the... Like, nothing. Like, he was picking up nothing. Yeah. So, yeah, I didn't have him as, as a weightlifting coach. But as a drafting coach, he was a nice guy, but he didn't teach me any techniques. That wasn't until I got to college, and you learn the spin your pencil and all that kind of good stuff. Mm-hmm. And the other thing I was thinking about had to do with how different it is now for people in a very, very positive way. If I had questions about what does it mean to be an architect, where was I getting that information from? Because what I can guarantee you, my high school guidance counselor didn't know squat about that as a profession. Mm. No idea. Yeah, for sure. And we've heard, I know you've heard this, I've heard it. Most guidance counselors tell people, well, you're not very good at math, so you shouldn't be an architect. And so people get steered on a different path. And you're like, no, 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 that's not right at all. Yeah. That's not right. That's like, they just don't know what they're talking about. But I also, I didn't know any architects. I'd never met an architect at any point in my life until I was in college. And so I couldn't ask questions there. And there was no internet. So you couldn't go do a research. Like you couldn't go on the internet and type life of an architect. <laughs> this information wasn't available to you. So there's no way that you could kind of know what you were about to enter into, what kind of world. So I know your story, but why don't you share your process? Because I know it's a lot different than what mine was. It's funny. I did all those things. I think that most architects did as kids. Unlike you, I had Lincoln Logs, but I also had tons and tons of Legos. I mean, all kinds of Legos. And I would build stuff around my house, not just Legos. I would build things out of wood and build forts and all this kind of stuff, but never had any idea about being an architect actually until I was in college. Right. <laughs> Originally, I was accepted into college into aeronautical engineering, and I wanted to design airplanes, actually. Interesting. That was my goal when I was in high school. 
but I ended up in an, an architectural history course my freshman year of college, I think spring semester maybe, and just really dug it. The professor was really great and talked about architecture in a really interesting way and just something at that point in my brain clicked finally, I guess, mm. <laughs> even though I think it kind of always been there, but because I didn't have any idea that that was really a job. I knew no architects. I mean, my parents were both you know teachers, educators. And so not a lot of architectural men in those circles. And so that was really it. At that point, decided, oh, I think I'm going to be an architect. Transferred to a school then that had an architecture program and was in college. <laughs> so I think I share a lot of the same experiences that a lot of architects say that they had as kids, but it didn't ever register with me that that was what I wanted to do until much, much later in my life. Yeah, those things didn't equal architect. They just equaled good time. Yeah. Yeah. And I drew all the time as a kid. I mean, I've still got notebooks and notebooks of stuff from when I was a kid and in high school when I was always drawing and sketching. And actually, my first two years of college before I transferred, I was actually an art major. <laughs> really? While I was playing basketball. And that's how come I was in this architectural history class. Is it rude that you said that you want to be an art person? I was like, really? Yeah, <laughs> like, yeah it's fine. I didn't mean it that way, but yeah, I find it. I find it amusing. But anyway, I made a different path. But a lot of the same shared experiences, they just didn't connect up to me, I guess, as early as some kids when they're like, oh, I knew when I was 11 or five, I'm going to be an architect. Yeah. It just didn't filter out that way for a long time for me. So if I move off of childhood development and I think about, I want to be an architect and I'm playing with toys to drawing oil derricks and squares and rectangles in drafting class. To actually being in college, my college experience was, I don't know, I think on one hand, it's very similar to what everybody goes through, at least in the beginning. But one of the things that happened is, so, you know, I grew up in a pretty musically inclined family. And so keeping that going was pretty important. I mean, my mom was a music teacher mm -hmm. and I played a bunch of different instruments. And I mean, I might even go so far as to say I was pretty good. Like my mom didn't ever express regret that I went into architecture, but I know she was a little disappointed that I didn't go into music because she told me on the tour, she goes, this comes so easy to you. How do you not recognize that you were made to do this? And most of the people who know me now know that I get way more excited talking about music than I do talking about architecture half the time. Yeah. Like I'm into it and I don't listen to music because I grew up listening to jazz because that's what my mom did. Mm -hmm. So I just, I listen to music differently. And even now I can hear myself. My heart rate's going up. I'm like, yes, it's very exciting. But it just, unlike those other things that never resonated with me as a career in the way that designing buildings was in my brain. Well, I got to admit, I could not see you in a band. <laughs> It doesn't have to be a rock and roll band, bro. Yeah, I know. Still, I don't any kind of band, quite honestly. Well, but, wait. Yeah. Here, well, here, here's what you might surprise you. Sitting in the other room is an electric guitar and an amp. Hmm. I've decided I'm gonna I'm gonna learn how to play guitar. But that doesn't surprise me. It's just you doing that as a lifelong career is what doesn't jive with me. But you know, that's just me. Could you see me in a jazz band though? No, because that's what I did. I did that yeah, no. through half of college. I was in a jazz hmm. band. Yeah. Through three years of college. Anyway, that notwithstanding. So, you know, I head off to school and I was in band. I was in the marching band in the fall semester and I was in the jazz band in the spring semester. And I didn't really want to do it. 
Because back then, like high school experience was kind of like, you are what people think you are. Being in band was not cool. Yeah, you're a band nerd. Yeah. And I mean, I w- not that you are, but like that's how you're labeled. Yeah. Yeah. And I wanted to be cool. Mm-hmm. And it's like, you couldn't, yeah, I don't know. It's a, that's a whole different thing to unbox. Yeah, that's, yeah, yeah, yeah. But it was hard. And I think part of the reason why I ended up where I was is because nobody in architecture school was in band, except for me, for the entirety of my six years in college. It's just, you can't do it. It's like impossible. The, the time demands of the two of those are just, they're not in alignment with one another. Yeah. And so, you know, there's that freedom you get when you go to college, you know, that kind of no parent freedom yeah. that you discover as you leave to go to college for your freshman year. And high school from a grade standpoint was not particularly challenging for me. I mean, I, I ended up like seventh in my class through some trickery, but nonetheless, I did pretty well in high school. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then I go to UT down in Austin and everybody there is an alpha performer mm-hmm. and me screwing around and pulling stuff out the way I was able to do it in high school just wasn't working. And couple that with unbridled tomfoolery, I almost said a different word, but I, you know, I cleaned it up at the last second. That and the time requirements of band, I did not do well my freshman year of college particularly not in, in architecture school, because I just didn't put the time in that they expected. Yeah. And so there you go. Ever since I was five years old, I'm now in this program, and I'm terrible. And I had this existential crisis of, oh, my God, what do I do now? I'm terrible at the only thing I've ever thought that I was going to do. And you know what? That's too young for people to have that kind of like mental breakdown. Yeah, but it happens. I mean, it's it's actually the time that it happens most, I think. Man. I'm learning as I teach it. That's what it is. Well, that's why we're talking about it, so that people yeah. don't realize that not only is it not unique, but it's recoverable, right? I mean, it's just like, oh, yeah. this is one of those moments where something will happen, right? And that could be like, maybe you realize that you don't want to do this. I've met a handful of people that realize they started and they're like, you know what? I don't want to put this kind of time in to do this. It's this pedestrian desire at best for me. And I don't want to do what it takes to do this. Mm-hmm. And that can be said like, hey, you want to go pre-med? You know what? You got to really kick some butt in that one too. And if you realize that that's not for you. That's your thing. Yeah. yeah. So anybody could have something that requires a lot of time or maybe it doesn't come naturally. So you have to put in more time to keep up with people where it does come naturally to them. So you have to make this decision. And so I had to make that decision. And I wasn't ready for it. Maybe it was a maturity thing. I don't know. So I stayed in the program in college for my sophomore year, but I didn't take design studio. When I was in school, we had five-hour class Monday, Wednesday, Friday, and then a three-hour class Tuesday, Thursday. It was a big demand, and that's just butt-in-chair class time. That's not do-the-work time. Mm -hmm. So I didn't take those two studios my sophomore year, thinking, I need to figure stuff out. And what I figured out is I love to party. <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't get any better at that. And I remember my, one of my older sisters. For one year, all three of us were in the same college at the same time. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. And uh, you know what? We almost never saw each other. No, that doesn't surprise me. I mean, it's big school. Big school. And me and the middle sister, we were both in band. So I saw her a lot then. And of course... You know, this is the overachiever. She was overachieving in band, too. And if you run into me, ask me to tell you some of my band stories, because they're pretty awesome. But I'm not going to do that today. So at my sophomore year, the oldest sister had graduated at this point. She was off to law school now. 
So it's just me and my middle sister. She comes to me like early spring semester of my sophomore year and she goes, mom and dad are going to pull you out of school if you don't get your shit together, is what, is what she told me. And I was like, oh, I'm about to get pulled out of school. It was this, oh crap moment. Hmm. And I asked both her and my dad about that. And they both like, no, that never happened. And I was like, it sure did. I mean, that's not something you just make up. Make up. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> that moment of that happening. And it's completely believable. My sister has always kind of been this protector of me, even if it's hard, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So it's believable that she concluded on her own that I needed to get my act together. <laughs> and threw that yoke on my dad. My dad's like, I never said that. But that put the weight to it that made you go, uh, yeah. maybe I should pay attention. Yeah. Yeah. And so all of a sudden, when I went back into architecture school for my third year, things changed. And I stopped screwing around. I stopped going off my friend. I mean, all the things that you think are fun about college, I pretty much stopped doing them most of the time. Hmm. And that was hard. But it wasn't as hard as if I had had to do that when I was a freshman, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. I got enough of it out of my system to where I go, uh, it exists. And so every week or every other week, I can go do something, but I can dedicate 95% of my time to this thing that I've decided actually matters to me. So my life fundamentally changed my third year in college. And then by year four and five, it became pretty pedestrian. Like school stopped being hard or challenging. I fell into a pattern and I knew what I needed to do. And by the time it was done, I felt like, and I think everyone should feel this way, hopefully, but I felt like I was one of the better designers in my class. I stopped looking to see what other people were doing. And I just did what I thought was right. And that's a kind of a moment that I think some people fall into at some point in their career. And by career, I mean like just your, your process of your career, like you're making a career. So I had that moment in college where I realized this is what I am. This is what I do. And I settled into it and things kind of fell into place. And that's not true with a lot of people. And I wonder how that played out for you because you changed the majors. So there's obviously a different kind of shift for you. There was, but it was also, it's funny, it's somewhat similar in a sense of, so my first two years, yeah, I did a lot of partying and a lot of fun stuff. I did all that stuff because I was an art major. And that was really, honestly, at that point, there was a few art studios, drawing classes and things like that. But it wasn't a lot of outside class time. It was do those things during class. And yeah, I might have had an art studio that was three or four hours a day, but that was it. And I worked in there and then that, I didn't go back. It wasn't like architecture school. And playing basketball and doing that and having a lot of fun. And then when I actually changed schools, transferred to a different school, I think actually it helped because I was older and I kind of gone through some of that college stuff, but I was in class with all these freshmen. Again, because you know how architecture works. It's not like I could just hop in junior year and start at the junior level courses. So here I am two to three years older than everybody that I'm in studio with and that maturity, I think, helped me a lot to be able to handle all the stuff. Not that it wasn't still a lot of work, but I just had a different, I don't know, a different attitude about it. It seems like you fell into after a couple of years, which, I mean, I did too, but I started from that standpoint. And so it was a little bit easier for me to deal with, I think. But also, I don't, I never had a hard time balancing all that stuff. I mean, I spent a lot of time doing architecture, of course, but I also remember lots of parties and doing lots of stuff, like having lots of fun. Even while I was in architecture school and I mean, neck deep, I worked. I mean, I was working at a bar for two of those years. So, I mean, I was <laughs> slinging drinks till three in the morning and stuff like that. And 
I still managed to have a life. I don't think I ended up being as pedestrian as you yeah. make it sound for your life. I mean, it took me a little bit longer, of course, because I transferred in, but also I was at a four-year degree, so really I was only there for an extra year and some change to end up getting my degree, but I was always an older person in all my classes. I'm not like the old army guy that came back with on his <laughs> GI Bill. That's the other thing. I was in class with one of those. You know, it's funny. I started with a guy who was, at that time, I mean, I was 20... I guess I was 21 and he was like 24 or something. And we were all like, God, he's so old or, you know, but he was, <laughs> he was in freshman classes at 24, 25 or something like that. So luckily I was able to relate to that guy, I think more than a lot of the freshmen at that point. But I think part of that helped me out that extra time to be able to experience that free college without actually being in architecture. Yeah. Cause I think that adjustment does a lot of people in, I can see that as a professor now, I can see how those things really in those first couple of years is a battle especially maybe the first year for sure of the amount of time that you're asked to spend doing that versus the amount of time you want to have all this enjoying all this unbridled freedom that you now have. There's a constant sort of battle there. Yeah. Yeah. I, I don't want to make it sound like I was lived the life of a hermit librarian, <laughs> but, and I shared this story in, in one of the posts I wrote and it had to do with me having a conversation. I was pretty down. I was talking to one of my, you know, and I had very distinct friend groups. Like for a while I had like, these are my, the people I'm friends with that are in band. Mm -hmm. And they did not mix with the people that I was friends with in architecture. Friends with in architecture. Oh yeah, for sure. For and sure. those people didn't mix with the people who were just my friends that were neither of those two things. Like yeah, no one ever came together. So I had a very bifurcated kind of friend group. Yeah. And the one group that was not associated with either band or with architecture school, those are the guys that I went to high school with that ended up at the same college that I did. Mm. And they were my go-to. Like when I was not doing something that I felt I was obligated to do, and I, and I now had the ability to do something I wanted to do, I was talking to him once and I was like, you guys never asked me to go do anything. And you know what? It, it makes me, it hurts my feelings. And he goes, well, you said no to everything we told you for years. And we just realized you're not going to come. And if you can come, you'll tell us that you can come. And then we tell you what we're doing, which was a completely reasonable thing to say. I, I had programmed their behavior to not ask me to go do stuff because I always said no. Like I always said no. Yeah. But then when I was like, all right, project's over. Presentation was done. Let's go. They'd say, this is what we're doing. And we went and did it. I mean, that happened. Yeah. So I kind of had this moment of like, hey, I have these silos in my life that come out. More from Life of an Architect in just a moment. I'm joined today by Amy Sweeting, Product Manager for Interior Product Solutions at Construction Specialties. Over the past nine years, she's held various positions at CS, including Senior Drafter, Project Coordinator, and Territory Sales Manager. As Product Manager, Amy helps guide the strategy for new and existing products. She is constantly collaborating with cross-functional teams as well as customers to understand needs and how to translate those into product and services that continue to evolve commercial interiors. Amy holds a Bachelor of Science degree in interior design from Meredith College in Raleigh, North Carolina, a Lean Six Sigma Green Belt certification from Rutgers University, and an EDAC certification for evidence-based design. Hi, Amy. Thanks for joining us this morning. It's good to see you again. Hi, Bob. It's good to see you again. Yeah. Well, last time we got to talk about some evidence-based design, but this time we're going to be focusing on materials and finishes. So right out of the gate, 
What are the important factors when making decisions on what to include in your finished portfolio? Well, first and foremost for finishes is aesthetics and cross-product coordination. So we think of different design principles. And for me, unity is kind of at the very top. It's a huge part of your material selection. How do you as a designer ensure that all of the elements within the space are working together cohesively? And how do you ensure that there aren't elements that conflict with each other or take away from the overall design strategy? So our goal is to make sure that the aesthetics for the materials not only coordinate across our own product portfolio, but that they inherently work with other finishes outside of our product line. Mm -hmm. We spend a lot of time researching and planning out our finishes just to ensure that they align with other industry finishes to make the selection process for the designer easier when they're within design development. That makes sense. We know every space has interior space, has walls, floors, and ceilings as the basic components. And those building blocks are added to with multiple finish solutions, with furnishings and fixtures. And there are elements that become focal points. We all Mm -hmm. get really excited about those. Sure, yeah. (laughs) While most of them are the functional backdrop. So we create finishes that fall within both of those categories. We have bold to subtle, warm to cool, and texture to solid. That's a nice list of considerations as a starting point, but surely there are other considerations that come into play. Oh, absolutely. The very next, I would say, after aesthetics and maybe in conjunction with that is performance. Not only are those like the top priority, but when we think about form versus function or form follows function, our goal is to provide a product solution that has a specific purpose, meeting a need, and has a beautiful form. So we design for the people inhabiting a space as well as the longevity of that building. Mm -hmm. So how do we design and create product finishes that'll be used by many different populations of people is one thing that we take into consideration. They all experience a space differently and they can use that same space differently. So how are we taking that into consideration? The next is, are the finishes durable? We look at impact testing and taper abrasion testing. Are those going to hold up over time? Are they cleanable? Are they bacterial resistant? And when you're looking at them, do they appear clean? (laughs) Yeah. A lot of that is perception, you know? Absolutely. Are they safe for the people using them? If we think about a lot of advancements that we've had, I think about cookware that I got right after college. I was super excited for it. And you could cook anything on that nonstick cookware. And I was making meal after meal eating that. And then we found out that maybe it wasn't as safe for the people that were consuming the food on that very specific coating. So another thing that we focus on is, is this safe for the people using it? And is it safe for our environment? So we're thinking about the building and its end users. And we want to collaborate with them to provide that best experience. And our commitment is to supply the best finish for our product categories. Well, that all makes perfect sense. And I can still remember me getting my first nonstick cookware and being just as excited. You mentioned materials being safe for the environment. So let's take a moment and drill into that a little bit. Let's talk about sustainability. What does CSC as the role responsibility of the manufacturer in sustainable design? So being ineffective, and I would say beyond that, just a good steward at a good manufacturer is about good design and part of that good design is sustainability. So CS has continuously worked to improve the processes and the materials that we use in our products to solve sustainability challenges. Right now, we're currently introducing our newest product, which is Acrovin with post-consumer recycled content. And this is the newest evolution of our Acrovin wall protection Mm -hmm. with up to 50% post-consumer recycled content. Prior to that, 
there can be recycled content that's not necessarily post-consumer. So we're trying to remove some of that waste that exists out there in the world. We're working with a resin producer who does an entire chemical change to that material to help us realize those resins and form them into our acarin. So Amy, I want to thank you for coming on the show today. I appreciate you taking the time and I appreciate you coming on today to talk specifically about materials and finishes and how those are integrated into the products that CS is manufacturing for us. Thank you. Thank you, Bob. It was great to be on here again. Good to see you. Wonderful. If I move into the next section, so we've kind of worked through time in school and how you I don't know. I don't know if this is true for most people. I believe it to be true. My experience and my recollection of the conversations I've had with other people is that most people in college, regardless of their major, have this kind of moment where they go from what they thought college was going to be like to settling into where their values are and what's important to them and what happens next and how the behavior they're doing now might have an impact on what happens later. My daughter's going through this right now. She's basically in a pre-med path. And she's worried about getting straight A's all the time. And yet she's balancing working and being in a sorority and all these things. And, and it's too much, honestly, as a dad who loves her and thinks that she's an all-star. Something's going to have to give. I mean, it's too much for somebody to do unless you just have everything figured out. And you know what? This is not a time. Yeah, you're not supposed to. Yeah, yeah. She's not even 20 yet. You know, she's in her sophomore year. and She obviously doesn't have everything figured out. But she's doing her darndest to get there. It's like she's going through the buffet line of life right now and putting a little scoop of everything on her plate. And I don't know, she's at that moment where some light bulb's going to go off and she's going to start pushing things off that plate and getting more of the things that matter to her focused on that. So I was going to say one thing before we move on to our next level. The one thing I want to maybe emphasize here, when I graduated undergraduate school, I would have considered myself one of the better designers that graduated from my school. I was in the top of that. I will tell you that when I got to graduate school, I immediately felt like I was in the bottom of the pile. Yeah. Like that was a drastic change to being in the grad school for me where I kind of, again, graduated my undergrad and everybody at my school kind of loved me in a way. I mean, I'm not trying to, but like I didn't have trouble getting recommendation letters. Like people thought I was a good student and enjoyed the things that I did and the way I thought about stuff. And then when I moved into graduate school, like automatically it's like going from the top of the pile to the bottom of the pile is what it seemed like. And it could be because of when I was in grad school, probably 50% of the people that I was in grad school with had been out and had been working for a few years and come back. So they were much more focused and on point. They just had more experience to be able to make those decisions and go faster and do all this stuff way better than I could yeah. at that time because I was just coming straight out of school. Yeah. At that point, my first semester or first quarter of graduate school was tough on me. As a That was a point where I was like, man, I don't know if I should be doing this now because uh, these people told me I was great and I get here and these people tell me I suck. And it's like, ooh. So there was a really big existential crisis at that point after I'd moved halfway across the country. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Two thirds of the way across the country at that point to go do something and then realizing, oh man, I'm not the rock star that I thought I was in a way. Yeah. And so that was a that was a different experience for sure. So I think that there is the that I don't know that sort of moment of going from undergraduate to graduate school where there's also another shift of expectations and, and that kind of stuff I think that should be noted even if 
everybody's still supposed to go to graduate school if you're doing a four-year degree, but it's still kind of a different thing, I think. Well, I mean, that just kind of underscores, even as we go into the next section, which has to do with what happens when you get out of school and you get that first job and is it like you think it is, these kind of bumps along the way, these kind of, you leave step one or step 12 or whatever it is, and you realize that the next step is different. It's not the same, like the distance from five to six to seven is not the same as 15 to 16, mm-hmm. whatever kind of metric you want to use. Yeah. Because I came out thinking, I'm awesome designer. And you know what? Truth is, I still feel like I'm pretty good. Like, I think I'm better than most. I'll be so brash to say, I think I'm better than most. I'm nowhere near as good as the people that go, they're good. Yeah. I work with some people and it just, some, it just pours forth from them mm-hmm. so naturally. And I've wondered a few times if... I hate those people. <laughs> oh. Well, you know what? I'm I just joking, go, but yeah. they haven't hit their bump yet. Yeah. Something's going to happen to them because I think part of what makes you, maybe we'll revisit this in the last section, but there are these things where you are good at something because you don't know what, you haven't put any of your own limitations on yourself. So you have more of this unbridled palette to work with before you start realizing, hey, you can't put that there because it's going to trigger all these other things. And so you start kind of like educating yourself out of, I don't know, creativity to a certain extent. Mm -hmm. And so there's this like, you learn something and then you kind of overcome what you've learned to get that creativity back. And then you learn more and then eats away. I just think it's, there's this ebb and flow to this process that changes. And that might happen in a lot of different capacities. So like, for example, first job out of school, I went and worked for a very, very small firm. And that small firm, I got to do literally everything. I mean, I was doing billing, you know, I mean, it was like right out of school. Oh, wow. And we went to Kinko's to do the billing, (laughs) you know, and I'm running Xerox, the copy receipts. I mean, did it all drafted design. I built models. I mean, it was only two of us in the beginning and then three and then four kind of thing. And it was all hands on deck for all things, all time. Mm -hmm. And so I still felt like I was a pretty good designer, but then what ends up happening is you come out of school and you realize all the things you don't know. And for some people, and I didn't realize this until I got to a big firm. And I worked for a big firm a long time ago, but I was a designer in that big firm and I was still pretty young and I didn't really pay attention to what other people were doing. I kind of siloed people into designers and non-designers. And that was it. That's as deep as my evaluation went. Mm -hmm. Well, now given the job that I have, I look at it like I said, it wasn't until I got to a big firm that I realized there are people that are in college that realize they don't want to be designers. Like that's not what they want to do. And I try to put myself in their shoes and then put that person, me in their shoes back into my shoes and my experience. And I go, I don't remember anybody learning how to be anything other than a designer when I was in college. We had like little morsels on the table to talk about things that mattered, like how you detail a building was not really covered. Mm-hmm. I mean, I had one class on it and it was superficial at best. It was more about how do you think? How do you solve problems? How do you ask questions? And I will tell you that I'm still amazed sometimes at how bad people are at asking questions about things that they don't understand. They'll make some assumptions and I'll shoot holes in it instantly. So I go, you clearly did not get the critical thinking education that I got. But then I have people that will start going through like a code search form and they're just like, it's like ducks to water. And I was like, what is this? Like, what do I do with this? It's just different. And I realized that there's people that are 
predisposed to design. There's predisposed to project architects, predisposed to project managers. And while I thought I was good at all those things, there are people that are better at that because they're dedicated project architects. They're dedicated project managers. But does anybody know that when they're in school? I don't think they do. And I'll ask you, the professor. No. Do the kids that are in your program realize that these silos exist? No, probably not, unless it's me that tell them about it. But for the most part, no. The school is about almost 100% educating designers. Yeah. And again, it's one of my issues with some of it. Yes, that's an important thing to know and understand the process, but there's got to be some other way to educate or even grab those people that gravitate towards architecture. But again, like you say, they're project architects, they're project managers, they're code specialists, they're sustainability specialists, whatever it is. But our education system doesn't work to support those people right now. And I'm not trying to suggest that specialization is 100% the way to go. No, no, no. I mean, that's not what I'm saying either. Right. But it's that, that idea that I was equated to like going to the pros in some kind of sport from college to pros. There's only 10% of the people go from college to the pros. Well, only about 10 to 15% of people that graduate from architecture schools are going to actually be designers as their main job for the rest of their career. Yeah. But what do we do? We teach only to that 10%. Like, that's the only thing that matters. To me, that's the hard part about it as a professor is like someone that I know, man, they're going to be a great project architect. But here in studio, that's not what it's about. (laughs) They're not a great designer. So I've got to give them not a great grade because they're not a great designer. But I don't want to discourage them from being in the profession because I can see that they're going to be good at something else. Yeah. Yeah. That's tough. It's tough. Well, you know, there's a youngish. When I first met her, she was definitely a young woman. Now she's still a young woman, but she's not as young. And I don't know if it's demeaning to continue to reference her as a young woman, but she was just finished her fourth year in college. And I was like, you're going to be a project manager. And I, she didn't know what that meant. Yeah. You know, but you could just see how she went about her business. This is what it was going to be. And I think that she might have accepted that as a, like, this is who I am. Like, I'm, I'm, I'm not that person. Not because she goes, I can't do those things, but more, I'm better at these things. I think that's kind of an important distinction to make for people. You don't have to be bad at something to conclude that it's not for you. You just have to recognize the things that you're good at and then try to navigate your way towards the things that you're naturally predisposed at that take care of the things that without much effort at all that you excel at. And you know what? I think a lot of people part of the reason why they bounce around or have bumpy starts to their career and start, I mean like 10 years, you know, in our profession, 10 years is kind of like the start Mm -hmm. that they're still figuring out who they are and having to wrestle with the fact that they're not this thing that they thought they were going to be. So when we talked about these existential crises and mine happened right when I got into school and I'm like, I'm not any good at this thing. I always thought I was going to be yours might be when you transferred to graduate school and you're like, thought I was awesome. And I'm not as awesome as I thought I was or, you graduate and you start a job and you're thinking you're going to be a designer. And they're like, no, we got people that can do that. You need to go into code check. And you're like, oh, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Yeah. There's that moment when you realize you're not going to be an astronaut anymore. And you have to start figuring out, okay, well, I'm ground control. I imagine all the people that are awesome at ground control, there's this period of time when there's sadness associated with them giving up on the idea of being the astronaut before they really lean into, yeah, but I'm awesome at ground control. I would relate it as like, you're not going to be the astronaut, but that doesn't mean you have to leave the space program. You could still be in the space program. Yeah. Where I think that's the problem. Not the problem. I think that's the hardest part of 
probably that first foray into the profession after you graduate or your educational part, whatever that is, grad school, undergrad, whatever, is being able to let go of that notion that my only goal in life is to be a designer and that's exactly what I'm supposed to be because that's all I've been taught to do, essentially. Yeah. And I think that's part of the reason why it's that 10-year is what we consider the beginning is because that's when you get exposure to all the rest of the profession. I feel like if if we shifted education and you had more exposure to that stuff in your education process, then maybe the beginning would only be five years instead of 10 or something. But I think it's learning, well, it's twofold, realizing that there's more to the profession than design, that there's a whole wide spectrum of ways to participate in architecture. And then two, being able to let go of the fact of, I thought it was going to be this and it's not this whatever that is. Most of the time it's being a designer, but it may be other things. I think those are the two really hard parts of starting your career in those first years is because I hear it all the time, you know, that oh, work is nothing like school. The profession is nothing like school. It's not. And you've got to be able to manage that. But again, just because it's different doesn't mean you have to leave the space program, right? You're not going to be the astronaut, but you're still a lot of, a lot of things it takes to make the space program work. Well, okay, so let's continue this journey down the river of our lives to a certain extent. And I'll use me as a case study here. So when I was 50 years old, I made a pretty significant change in my career path. I went from historically being in small firms and being a designer and doing client management and all that kind of stuff to going to a giant firm that doesn't do anything that I knew how to do to... Now I spend most of my time managing the temperaments of employees, thinking about how we should be reallocating resources. Are we paying attention to the right things? How do we create the firm that we want for ourselves, but also that other people want to be a part of? Things that I've never had to think about before. And what I've learned, and I knew this heading into it, that I think I'm pretty good at those things. And it wasn't anything I went to school to learn how to do. It's just, this is you figuring out that there are certain things that, like not surprisingly, I'm a pretty good, at least I think I am. There's evidence suggests maybe, or opinions to suggest that I'm not. But I'm, I'm a pretty good extemporaneous speaker because I spent a lot of time in my head thinking through why you would do one thing or not. I do point, counterpoint in my brain against my, I argue against myself constantly. It doesn't make for easy night's sleep. I'll tell you that much. But the idea that you would look at things like work from home policies or employee evaluations or career development, or I mean, how do you make sure that people are in the right place so that they succeed? It's that, okay, you've been given some leadership responsibilities and how do you make sure that the people that you have some kind of responsibility for, how do you make sure that things go as good for them as you possibly can? And there's that change between you thinking about what's best for you to what's best for everybody else. And that's something that I don't think that people who are young in their career have to really spend a lot of time thinking about. I mean, you make decisions based on what's best for you and your family and your career, but then all of a sudden you wake up one day and you're, I don't know, you got more rings around the trunk than you did. And you start thinking about how can you be a part of something that impacts everybody else. And so now all of a sudden your decision process has little to nothing to do with what's best for you and everything to do with what's best for somebody else. Didn't see that coming. I think a lot of people find themselves in that position as they get older, but who thinks about it before they end up there? I guess that's kind of the the equal sign for that. 
Yeah, I mean, I guess. I feel like I thought about a lot of that stuff when I was younger <laughs> because I was owning a business and growing a business and I had to think about all those other people. I got forced to do those, think about others before myself pretty early, I feel like. But it's interesting that I think my change, which was pretty drastic at 20 years into my career, uh, now being an educator, actually flips it back in a way to being more about myself. In a way, not exactly. I'm teaching, trying to educate the architects of the future, which is not necessarily about myself, but in a way it becomes a little bit more inward focused in a sense of me trying to educate them in the way that I want it to be done or that I would have wanted it to be done. Or Right. In that sense, I feel like it's funny to say, but that I feel like I have more concern about myself now as an educator than I ever did when I was running a business. Yeah. In a way, which is a strange Strange statement to make, but I think that's sort of where it's at. But again, a drastic change because it can, man, I'm still navigating waters that I have no idea <laughs> how to navigate because the academic world and that system is so foreign to me. Even still after now, four years into it, there's still so much about that that I don't know and understand or don't really appreciate or <laughs> maybe even enjoy the way that stuff works because it is such a different place in the professional world that I came from. But isn't that the biggest takeover we're talking about? I mean, you're in your late 40s now. It was about the same time for me when this started to happen. The point of that is you're 20 plus years downstream from getting out of college. And you made a pretty big pivot from being in private practice, having your own office, to not doing that and going into academia and teaching. Like mm -hmm. that's a pretty big shift. Yeah, I doubt that when you got out of school or even 10 years of you being out of school, saw yourself not in private practice and a professor in, a, in the classroom teaching kids. Yeah. Pretty sure you didn't see that coming. And I can tell you that I didn't see me having the job that I have now and the thing that I actually think I'm really good at. I didn't see that coming either. So the idea that you're going to have these things that show up in your life that are going to divert you from the course that you anticipated. That whole, when I grow up, it doesn't stop. I'm still growing up. Yeah. The criteria is, do things go the way you think they're going to go? And do you have the, I don't know if flexibility is the right way, but if you have the kind of, I don't know, the ability to... Adaptability is the word. Yes, yes. that's a great word for it. Yeah. To recognize something as being better path or a more interesting path or just new because it's different. An opportunity, yeah. Yeah. I'm talking to somebody right now and 55 years old. There's a lot of people that are around my age and they're all starting to think, what next? Right? Because they're, maybe they're starting to get a little bored doing what they're doing. And so they're mm -hmm. looking for new challenges or, yeah. or they're like, hey, the kids are out of the house now. I've got so much bandwidth that cleared up. What am I going to do with it? Mm -hmm. So they start taking on different hobbies. They say, you know what? I want to travel more. I want to see things. I want to start quilting. I want to start doing fill in the blank. I mean, it yeah. all starts happening. And so that adaptability, that flexibility, it never stops. That idea of when I grow up, I want to be this. It's a fake question because you're never, <laughs> that equal sign changes and moves forever. Yeah. Yeah. That's the summation of this whole episode. It's going to change, but be ready for it. Be open to it. And don't feel like it's wrong that you're not what you thought it was going to be. That's not a bad thing. That's natural evolution. Yeah. And that there's always those moments of, I don't want to say crisis, but change that feel like crisis. 
to me, that's the funny thing is you can look back at them now and realize, oh, it wasn't as bad as I thought it was at the time I was in it. Yeah. Or it didn't turn out as bad as I thought it was when I was living in that moment, how terrible it was going to be that whatever that is, that I didn't get to be a designer or I didn't get to work at that firm. Or Yeah. It has a way of working itself out. And typically, if you have the right attitude, it works itself out for the better. Yes. Okay. So we're at the end of episode one of the 2024 season, and we have the end of the show question. And I thought it would be fun. We haven't come up with a new one yet. I realize that we have these patterns that we fall into and the rankings turned into ranking of foods and the hypotheticals turned into <laughs> ranking of superpowers. And like, so we're trying to find different ways. So I'm going to do one that's kind of a blend between a would you rather and a hypothetical. You ready for this? Mm-hmm. The setup's a little long. It's not as long as the zombie one, but it's still, it's got some length to it. Yeah. So in this case, here's the question. You are given the choice of starting each week off with a new talent or ability, but at the end of every week, it goes away and you have to choose something new. Or you get to choose one talent or ability and you get to keep it for the rest of your life. Now, the only rules that initially came to my brain before people say I'm changing the rules, these are the only two I've thought of so far because it gets to be too easy. It changes the whole direction of the question without these two rules. Rule number one is you can't repeat your weekly skill within a one-year period. So you can't say, I can play the guitar and I'm going to choose that for the next nine months so I can have this nine-month run of like being awesome at playing the guitar. Can't do that. You got to change it every single week. And you also can't benefit financially from this skill or ability because we don't want you to say, this is the ability and I'm just going to get rich and then I can just do whatever I want. That's the other thing. We're not going to do that. Yeah. So that's eh, too easy. Yeah, yeah. It changes the whole trajectory of it. Yeah. Dynamic of the whole question. Yeah. So there you go. That's my question. So since I asked the question, you got to go first. Okay. So questions about questions. So the skill that I get week by week, literally all of it disappears. Yeah. Well, like you revert back to whatever you were before you got it. So like, okay. Okay. I can't play the guitar now. Mm hmm. I can become like expert at playing guitar for a week. When you wake up tomorrow. And then it, then it goes away and I revert back to whatever skill or lack thereof I had before. Okay. So here's my answer. I guess maybe you can tell me whether or not it's going to work <laughs> in your mind. My answer is the, the lifelong skill. Okay. But the skill I want is to be able to nope. learn to speak any language fluently. Oh, I, th I, thought, you <laughs> I thought you were going to say was to learn new skills every week. No, 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 no. To learn to speak any language fluently. Sure. So in yeah, other words, yeah. my skill is I want to be able to speak eight languages if I want to speak eight languages. Yeah, you become an expert linguist. Yeah. Okay. That's my skill for forever. Really? Yeah. Mainly because if it was a longer time, like if it had been a month per skill, you might have had me, but the week turnover is, I find it not useful and also actually maybe a bit depressing. Because let's say, all right, I want to be the best chef in the world for a week, and then I got to wait a whole other year where I get to cook all this really great stuff, and then blah. And then I want to learn to play guitar, and I could do it, jam out for a week, and then blah. If it was a little bit longer for that time period, you might have had me. But a week at a time, is there's not enough gratification for me in that week. That would have to have been a little bit longer, and then I might have bought into the once a month, 12 skills a year, and then, but the one week is, I don't feel like it's enough time for me to enjoy. And maybe it's because 
I don't feel like I got enough free time in a week anyway. Sure. <laughs> so then all the skills would end up being like work related. How can I make my job, which was a waste of skill, the waste of the wish. Yeah. Yeah. Because in a week, that's all it really is. Okay. This week, I want to be able to master Excel spreadsheets because I got this deadline coming up for this. Or this week, I want to be able to type 9 million words a minute because I got to write this report. I feel like it would be on a weekly basis. That would be what it would turn into. Yeah, but you could get in trouble for that because all of a sudden you do some killer spreadsheet and you go, nailed it. And then they're like, hey, Andrew, we need you. And you're like, we need you to do this another one. Yeah. And you're like, I can't do it. I know. Come see me in 51 weeks. (laughs) Exactly. Yeah. So I thought about doing a longer one, but I went, "Mm, that's not really the point of the question in my mind. For me, it really has to do with the idea of settling in on one thing and being okay with that because that's the other reason why I put money into it. Because the other thing it suggests that, I'm not improving the station of my life by whatever talent or ability I have. So for me, so it's an easy one. I would change skills every single week because hmm. I think the experience of being able to be an expert at something, even if it's for a very short period of time, I think would keep my interest and my brain going. Yeah, it satisfies your ADHD is what it does. Well, I think it does more than that. It- it's not the change that I'm excited by. It's the variety. It's the fact that literally for the rest of my life, I can go, I want to be great at piano. I want to be great at guitar. I want to be great at trumpet. I want to be great at drawing. I want to be great at water skiing. I want to be great at surfing. Whatever it is mm-hmm. that whatever I want to do, I don't think I would have a hard time. Come, I want to be great at baking. If I was clever about it, which I think I would be, I might say, ooh, it's holiday season. I want to be great at playing the piano. And then I'll go at all the parties and I play piano. And they're like, Bob, he's really good at playing the piano. And then they're not going to see me till next year's Christmas parties, whatever the case may be. But it's the variety, I think, that, and I'm starting to realize when I ask these questions and I come up with my answers, variety almost always comes into it. Mm. And it's not shiny objects thinking for me. It's the, like when I have an amazing view all the time, after a while, it's just the view. It might still be great, but is it as great as that first initial, like, oh my God, this is Mm, yeah. I wonder if, and I could be wrong about this, but that's what my brain tells me. But see, to me, that still is about sparkle. It is about shiny new object. Yeah. I mean. In a way. I can't argue against that, but it's, that's not the motivation. But I don't disagree. That was the one thing for me that was interesting about the new skill all the time was just to get to experience all these different things. That was a draw for me. It's just that, that even if it had been two weeks. It's the one week thing that is just not enough for me. Like, God, I mean, I turn around backwards once and the week is over for me. Like, that's the way I feel about time right now. So that's why, like, I understand the draw of that variety and saying I get to learn all these different things. Because to me, that was enticing. It's just the short, short time span. It was too short for me. I wonder if it would keep my brain youthful also by having something new to expand and create new creases in my brain every single week. Yeah. Because... It's not like I think, unless something nefarious happens to me, I got decades left of new stuff. So it's not like I can have this moment where I, I learn how to play the guitar and I love it and oh, I'll never get to do that again. I'll have six months of one week at a bite for the rest of my life. I can be 80 going, let's redo that guitar thing this week. I think that would be, mm-hmm. to me, I, that's an easy decision for me. I do like the idea of having one just unbelievable talent or ability that lasts the rest of your life. But I'm not so sure that as soon as I put that you can't financially benefit from it, 
I'm not so sure what talent that I would choose that would supersede the ability to, I mean, I still can do that thing. Like I can still go this week. I can talk whatever language I want. I still have that ability. I don't know that having just the one for the rest of my life would be as interesting to me as the variety of it, Mm. which is starting to be a pattern. I guess I'm starting to recognize it as a pattern. So, all right. Well, we want everyone else to chime in and let us know right out of the gate, which one would you choose so that we can tally it up and declare a winner between Andrew and myself? Man, that's 52 skills a year. Mm -hmm. Well, there could be a variety. You can say, I want to be an amazing, like if you want to do food, there's a lot of different jobs and a lot of different skills within the culinary world that you could choose. There's a lot of different musical instruments that you can choose. You're not choosing to be amazing at music. You might say guitar this week, piano next week, three-tiered organ the week after that, trombone for a week. Let's see how that trombone business goes. Accordion, yeah. Yeah. Recorder. There's a lot. Yeah. The juice harp. (laughs) There's a lot of variety within. Jug. Yes. Wash tub. (laughs) I want to be the world's greatest wash tub performer. The spoons. I've got the spoons. Yes. Yes. It could be fun for a week. Yeah. A week. Yeah. I don't know. That's kicker. But I got you. I got All right. I think we've reached a point where I'm going to call that a wrap. Thank you for being with us today for the first episode of 2024. Episode 142, When I Grow Up. Construction Specialties is so focused on the importance of mastering movement, they have created CEUs specifically on mastering the physical movement of buildings. Each course is worth one AIA LU slash HSW and is part of the Mastering Movement Academy provided by CS. Visit masteringmovement.net to take this and other courses. We'd also like to thank our media partners, Building Design and Construction, for their ongoing support of the Life of an Architect podcast. Want to get every new episode automatically downloaded? We're available on all major podcast platforms, so hit that subscribe button and you'll get notified every two weeks when we publish a glistening new episode. While you're there, please take a few moments and leave us a five-star, things-are-always-changing rating. To get even more content, head over to lifeofanarchitect.com for blog posts, links, and info about this humanizing episode and all the website has to offer. Thanks so much for tuning in. Take it easy, everybody. Cheers.